Go ahead and grab a seat. Man, it's so good to have y'all with us tonight. I'm excited to see y'all again. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Again, it's actually the last few verses in chapter 1, so we're making some headway, moving right along. So again, Philippians 1, we're going to be in, starting in verse 27 here in just a moment. Verse 27. By the way, I'll say this. If you did not get to go to the boys' ranch with us on Monday, you missed out. It was an awesome time. If you've never been, you, you've got to give it a shot. It's, it really is incredible. Great conversations with the kiddos. Zach Vega killed the devotional like he did a good job. <laughs> um, super good stuff. So, man, next time we'll go out again in March, and so be looking forward to that. It's going to be a really good time. Philippians chapter 1, verse, verse 27 is where we'll start. Do you guys remember? This was like a huge deal I guess a couple of years ago. I think it's still on TV, but it used to be a really big deal. Do y'all remember Duck Dynasty? Like the craze that was. I remember it was like took over America for a little bit. Did I say America? <laughs> I'm in America. <laughs> but there was one episode. I don't remember like really where it was in the seasons. But there was one episode where Willie got this huge order for duck calls. I mean, it was like one of their biggest ever. And so he, had, he was doing all this you know, CEO kind of stuff. And he told the guys in the shop, he said, hey, look, we have a huge order. So... I've got to go do some things, but whether I'm here with you guys or whether I'm away, you've got to get this order done. This is, this is really, really important. Like, sure thing, Willie. You know, of course, they're like full of it. So um, he goes off and does his thing. Well, they go in the warehouse where they're supposed to be making the duck calls. And does anybody remember what they ended up doing, what they made? Okay, the basketball was one time, so they did this a lot. But the one I'm thinking of, they made a conveyor belt. Y'all remember that? They made a conveyor belt and hooked it up to a truck, and they ended up, and they were shooting all kinds of things off of it. They eventually shot Mountain Man off of it in a kayak, I think, or a canoe, like all these different things. So finally, when Willie comes back, he was like, what are y'all doing, right? And they're like, we, we thought it was pretty cool, you know? Um, but they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. It makes me think about, some of y'all remember, you can think about like growing up and your parents are going out of town, or maybe they're going to be gone for the day, and they say, hey, look, I'm... I'm going to be gone for the day, but whether I'm here or whether I get back later, whatever the case, this, this better be done, right? Some of y'all are like, man, that's what my roommate says to me, right? <laughs> yeah, this idea of like, whether I'm here with you or not, this is really, really important that you do this, right? What if God, as our boss, so to speak, um, could, could go away for a little bit? I don't mean like literally like he he's not, doesn't exist, but like, in a sense, to go away and say, hey, whether I'm, whether I'm with you, whether I, you know that I'm watching you or not, this is really important, what I want you to do. I love in, in Philippians, this happens a lot in the Bible, but in Philippians, God, through Paul, was telling the Philippians and in turn is telling us, hey, hey here's, this is really important. Here's how I want you to live. This is really important. So Paul, if you remember, he was, where was he when he wrote Philippians? Yeah, he was in jail. He was in prison, right? And he's saying, hey, whether I, get, whether I get out and get to come and see you, whether I don't, whatever the case, here's what I want you to do. And so doing that, in a way, God's not in a way, for sure. God is telling us, hey, this is really important. Here's how I want you to live as Christians. Check this out. This is Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with, more, excuse me, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As Christians, we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he expects of us. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that the way we live shows how precious the gospel is, how precious the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, how precious that is. Uh, man, think about that. We, can, we should always, you think if you're on a road trip, there's some things, some towns and some sites you just pass through, but every time we, we mention the word gospel, we should pull the car over. I don't know why I'm doing that. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> We should always pull the car over and stop and think about that and reflect on the gospel. The fact that Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, loves you so much that he died for you even before you were born. Knowing all the sinful, messed up things that you would think, that you would say, that you would do, that you would have in your heart, he still loved you enough to die for you, for me. He takes... Because of the cross, he takes the treasure, excuse me, the trash of our life and turns it into a treasure. He, he takes us from being dead to being alive, alive. He gives us hope when we had no hope. That's the gospel. That even though I'm far more wicked and evil than I could ever even imagine, I'm far more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever dare hope or believe because of Jesus that's the gospel. And he's saying, hey, whatever happens, live your life in a manner worthy of that. I want you to live your life in such a way that it shows how precious, how amazing, how beautiful, how powerful what Jesus has done is. I, I want you to live in a way that is worthy of that. What does it look like? He says, it's standing firm, kind of the end of verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this idea that all of us, man, as we go out, so we, we gather to worship, then as we scatter and go back out to work or to school or to family or to the dorm. Y'all started a Bible study at the dorm, that's cool. Side note. Anyways, wherever we go, that as we scatter out, man, we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. That, man, we're going out. We're going to stand firm from this. We want people to hear about Jesus that we have one mind, man, it's our focus, it's our aim in life. I love this verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Man, so this means that as we go out, we realize how amazing and precious the gospel is, the good news of Jesus, that we realize nothing we could face, nothing we could encounter is worth being scared of because we realize Jesus is always bigger and better. Does that make sense? So it's not that like if some guy comes at you with a sword that you're not like, I'm not scared at all. But you're like, you know what? Maybe somewhere in there I'm kind of scared. But you know what? Ultimately, I'm not afraid because I know Jesus is worth living and dying for. Remember what we saw last week? When Jesus is everything, you are free from what? Fear. You guys listen. Good job. <laughs> yeah, you're free from fear. So as we, as we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, what does it look like? It means we ain't scared. <laughs> no matter what they may throw at me or say to me or do to me, I don't have to be scared because I have Jesus and he's all I need. He's going to come through on his promise that he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. 
He says, so when we're not afraid, even in the face of persecution, as we advance the gospel, the end of 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The idea, idea, (laughs) man, I'm extra redneck tonight. The idea being that, man, as, as they come to persecute you, because you're not afraid, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. In other words, what do they know that we don't know? <laughs> We're fixing to kill them. We're fixing to ridicule them. We're fixing to fire them, make fun of them. And they could care less. They just keep loving and living for Jesus. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction that maybe they've missed something. He says, it's a sure sign of your salvation. So, man, as we stand for the gospel in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, as we are like, you know what, we ain't scared, and we live for Christ, that assures us, man, yes, we really do know Jesus. Here's how. You're not going to be willing to die for something if you don't really believe in it, right? You're not going to be willing to face difficulty for something if you don't really believe in it. So as you stand firm and you're not scared, even in the face of persecution, it's a sign to you that, hey, I, man, my faith in Jesus is real. This, this, is, this is a real thing. He really, is, he really is giving me strength and encouragement. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What does it say we've been granted? What does it say? Verse 29. Two things. Believe. What was the second one? To suffer. Which one are we really good at as Americans? Mm, Let me rephrase that. Which one do we lean towards as Americans? Believe, right? Yeah. I think all of us are like, yeah, man, I believe. But then you start talking about suffering as a Christian. You're like, well, I'm, I'm good. Right? So here's what I want you to see. Living a life worthy of the gospel is not just I go to church when I can. I listen to Caleb and everyone every now and then. <laughs> That's not a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is one that says, man, I'm going to strive to advance the gospel <clears throat> even if I have to suffer for it. Because I realize that Jesus is worth it. And this is, this is what's been granted to me. If you remember, what did Jesus say? They hated me, so they're going to what? They're going to hate you. If there's a guy that could maybe help us, this idea of suffering. Some of y'all have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I've mentioned him before. John Stott, who was a pastor in, in London, wrote this about uh, Bonhoeffer. He's getting up quoting him. But listen to this. Few men of this century have understood better than evitability, sorry, inevitability of suffering than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He seems never to have wavered in his Christian antagonism towards the Nazi regime. Although it meant for him imprisonment, the threat of torture, danger to his own family, and finally death. He was executed by the direct order of Heinrich Himmler. Sorry, Heinrich. <laughs> in April 1945 in the Flossenburg concentration camp, only a few days before it was liberated. It was the fulfillment of what he had always believed and taught. Now he quotes Bonhoeffer. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. 
Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church and one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession. It similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Now here's the key I want you to hear. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. So Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, I'm going to follow you. You are willing to suffer for me, I'm willing to suffer for you because that that's what it means to follow you. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to, su- to suffer. We are called to live worthy of the gospel, to show gospel preciousness even in the face of persecution and suffering for Jesus. We're called upon to live a life worthy of the gospel. Worthy of something. When, when you see something as worthy of something, you, you see that there's, there's a greatness about it. There's, there's certain expectations re- required of it, if that makes sense. To kind of demonstrate that, there's a, the reason that only third grade, the, the only people I've convinced, let me say this this way, sorry. There's a, the reason that Third graders, the only people I've convinced that I've played in the NFL or the NBA (laughs) is because everybody else realizes there are certain expectations associated with playing in the NFL or NBA, right? You can probably look at me and realize that don't match up, right? I told Duncan the other day, yeah, man, I taught LeBron some moves in high school. He was like, that's cool. No, (laughs) right? Yeah, you, you, you look and say, hey, that's... Yeah, he, he's not worthy of the greatness required for the NBA or the NFL. You tracking with me? Similar to sometimes you, um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's done this, but you may, you may look at a new couple and it's a, it's a guy and a girl, or a guy or a girl, and they're dating some loser, and you're kind of wondering, how did he end up with her? You ever done that before? You're like, I don't, it doesn't match, right? It doesn't, this guy is not worthy of her. And that's normally how it works, right? I don't, it's very rare that you think, man, that girl's not worthy of him. Normally it's like, man, he's a loser, right? What is, what is she doing? However he's behaving, however he's acting is not befitting. It's not worthy of what she deserves, right? I think about, I've got a little box in my office, but I left it in there on accident. I think about, uh, when I went ring shopping for Lauren, woo woo, and uh, Thacker Jewelry, by the way, is a great little place. A little shout out to Thacker. <laughs> but when we went, as fun as it was, there was a little bit of this like inside pressure. I'm not just trying to like be all lovey dovey here, but there was something in me that was like, man, I got to get something that is worthy of her. You know what I'm saying? Which that's that's a good thought. That's a good thought. You know, <laughs> not like I just got to buy her something. Like there was there was a sense of there was a sense of. Man, whatever I get her, like she, she's worthy of an of, of an awesome, an awesome ring. Some of y'all are like, if you look at Lauren now, you're like, how did he end up with her? <laughs> but yeah, there was a sense of man, I want to make sure whatever it is, it's it's befitting, it's worthy of who she is. See, when when something is precious to you, you realize that it's worthy of a lot. When the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, it's 
precious to you, and it should be, then you realize that he's worthy of a lot. It's not that, oh, i got to earn something, i got to do something. It's that, man, he's incredible, so I want my life to reflect how incredible he, he is, right? It's like the ring with Lauren. Not that it's the biggest and, and baddest, baddest, like, that's a bad ring. <laughs> not, not just the prettiest ring ever, but it, I did my best to, even though it came at a cost, <laughs> a high cost, it was, it was totally, <laughs> getting in trouble here. It was, it was totally worth it. Now I'm going to redeem myself. <laughs> it was totally worth it. Because she's worthy of it, right? Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, so living boldly, advancing the gospel together, striving for that, is going to come at a cost. But if Jesus really is precious to you, then you're going to realize, hey, it's worth living a worthy life. Let me ask you, what would it say to you all about how precious I view Lauren if I was ashamed of her. If when we walked in the room, I was like, hey, you can stay over there. Uh, stay away from me. If I ever do that, please beat me up. Literally, just beat me up. <laughs> you would say, she deserves better, right? Anybody would deserve better than to be treated like that. So if I'm saying, oh, you're precious to me, but then I'm ashamed of her, then maybe she's not so precious. Y'all, if, if we say, Jesus, you're everything to me, but then we're ashamed of him, what does that say about how precious he is to us? And here's the deal. In America, like, I think we say, oh, I'm scared. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I advance the gospel, if, I, if I'm bold for Jesus. Y'all, we're in America. It's really not that bad here. I think we watch the news, and, and, and I'm guilty of it too. We're like, man, things are getting tough for Christians. Are you kidding me? No, it's not that bad. L- listen, there was a, an article um, written in FaithWorks, and they were talking about the, the suffering church. And they, they wrote up, not that this is like some official list. This is not in the Bible necessarily, or it's not. Um, they came up with a 17-point list of degrees of suffering, of persecution. And so in order... From this article, it's disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform, loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, alienation from community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, murder, or execution. Here's the reality. As, a, as Americans... Only the first three maybe apply to us. When I, when I say apply to us, I mean like we've kind of maybe, maybe experienced or maybe could experience disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform. And to be honest, I, I don't know how much I've experienced those. We have got, me, <laughs> we have got to be, we've got to quit being wusses. Right? If we're going to live life worthy of the gospel, we've got to quit being scared, y'all. One Christian from kind of Eastern Europe that had gone through a lot of persecution, he was talking with an American Christian, and he stuck his finger in his chest, and he said, don't ever, I'm going to mess it up, let me read it. 
He said, don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would have given, we would never have given up in persecution. Y'all, we have so many freedoms to share the gospel. We have got to quit being scared of, oh, I, I may get made fun of, or, or they may not hang out with me. First of all, the, y'all, we're in Lubbock. The worst, they might say, well, that's kind of lame. I don't know if I believe in that. You want to go bowl? <laughs> it's not going to be that bad. We've got to quit being, if, if Jesus really is precious to us, then we've got to quit being scared. So that means when we're in class, when, when we're at work, when we're with our families, we're with our friends hanging out, and we're at the coffee shop, wherever, we've got to be willing and ready to take every opportunity to advance the gospel. Because that's what we're called to do as Christians, to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is, I wasn't really, like, I was excited about tonight, the message, but, like, this, oh my y'all, this is, again, this is not my, this is from here, right? <laughs> this is hard for me, because I realize, man, I got some room to grow. Anybody else with me there? We gotta quit, gotta quit being scared. I wanna, cool tuner. <laughs> no, I like it, it's cool. <laughs> I wanna share a little, um, story with you kind of as we wind down. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to read some of it to you because it's, it's pretty incredible. And I'll just go and tell you about There's a book. Some of y'all have probably already read this. Um, I've heard about it. Actually, the church is showing a movie on it uh, like two, two and a half weeks from now. Uh, but The Insanity of God. Some of y'all may have read that or heard about that. And I'll be honest, sometimes when I hear about I don't know, Christian books, sometimes I'm like, I don't know what that is, but um, kind of stumbled across it today and I wish I could have just like gone home and read the whole thing because it it was gripping. It was incredible. It basically it's a guy. Now this guy's name he um, it's not his real name, but for for security purpose for for safety essentially he he changed his name for the book and it's, it's uh, make sure I say it right. Nick, Nick Ripkin. Again, that's not the guy's real name. We don't know what his name is. Nip. Sorry, Nick Ripkin. Um, he essentially. <laughs> oh boy. He traveled. It's going to laugh. I didn't get it out. <laughs> Nick. Nick, Nick, Nick. <laughs> he traveled. <laughs> I was okay, John. I looked at you, man. <laughs> Anyways. He traveled around the world visiting persecuted Christians and hearing their stories. And one guy he came across, which again, you, you've got to read this book. It's incredible. One guy he came across, the guy said, hey, I'll meet with you. I'll tell you my story, but I'm going to require that we... Um, meet in a non-public place. You can't see my face, and you cannot, you cannot have my name. And the author of this book was, was kind of used to that kind of thing, so they decided to meet. Um, he says that, there we go. As he walked, when he finally got to this room and walked in, it was literally, it sounds like a, some like creepy detective movie, but he walks in, there's one single light bulb hanging from the ceiling, and the guy, there's just like this silhouette of a man Back in the room, that, so Nick can't he can't see his face at all. Like so, it's kind of a little bit creepy. Like, man, who's this guy I'm about to meet with? And the guy began to tell a story. He actually, talked for like six hours. But here's one of the first things that this man—we don't know his name—but told Nick. He said, during an earlier invasion of his country, the man told me that he had led a squad of 15 soldiers committed to repel foreign invaders. He calmly recounted his experience. 
So this is the man talking. I took great joy in the name of Allah when I could sneak up behind an enemy soldier at night, silently cut his throat, and allow his blood to wash over my hands as an offering to Almighty God. And Nick in the book says, as he began to describe this, I began to fear. <laughs> and he said, as the, the soldier kept des- describing all these men, men that he had, people he had killed, he, he eventually kind of accidentally blurted it out. He says, how many people have you killed? And the man said, I quit counting after 100. He said, the catch is, the 100, that was just men that I just killed. That wasn't in battle. That was just people that I snuck, snuck up to and killed. Nick writes, my mind boggled at that number. He went on to tell me that after a time, he started to have a dream. It was a recurring dream that came to him over and over again. He dreamed of spots of blood on his hands. Night after night, he would have the same dream. Over time, the spots of blood grew larger. Eventually, he was dreaming that the blood was running down and dripping off his arms. He realized early on that in his dreams, he was imagining the blood of all those people he had killed. The dreams were so vivid and so disturbing that he dreaded falling asleep at night. I really thought that I was going insane, he told me. When I began to see the blood during my waking hours, I was even more upset. And no amount of washing or scrubbing with sand could get the blood off. So it was so real to him, he was during the day literally scrubbing his arms with sand, trying to get the blood off that he was seeing. I soon became convinced that I was going absolutely insane, he went on. Then one night the dream changed. As I stood there helplessly watching the blood run down my arms, I also saw in my dream a man standing before me. <laughs> he was a man clothed in, a, in white with a scarred head. He also had scarred hands, a scarred side, and scarred feet. The scarred man said, I am Jesus the Messiah, and I can get the blood off if you would just find me and believe in me. So this man, he, he realized something was happening. So he, be, he began to search. It took him over a year to find a copy of Scripture. It took even longer for him to understand what he was actually reading. And every now and then, God would send someone his way, a missionary, typically, who would, who would give him little bits and pieces of the gospel. And eventually, he turned to Jesus. And this is what this guy told Nick that night in, the, in that creepy room. He said, when he invited Jesus into his heart, the man said, I got the blood off. Jesus took that blood Onto himself. And immediately his dreams ended. By the way, I believe every word of this. Like, I'm, I'm not so Baptist that I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I totally believe this. It says that after that, there was, there was no church he could attend, no Bible study he could attend. But he kept reading and studying the Bible and doing what, what the Holy Spirit told him to do. It says that eventually he, he began to, to smuggle Bibles, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> he was taking Bibles and Bible portions and other Christian materials. Even you've heard of the Jesus film. He was taking that over the mountains from, from another country into his own. So he's smuggling Bibles from another country over the mountains into his own country. Pretty awesome. He did that for two years. And then it says that one day while he was uh, coming around a mountain pass, this again blows my mind. He was on this uh, narrow trail, which if you've been hiking in Colorado, you know, sometimes in the mountains, trails can be incredibly narrow. He's, he came face to face with the squad of 15 men that he used to lead. Track with me? So remember he used to lead these men and kill essentially Christians. 
He came face to face with them. They had been searching for him because they knew what he was doing. They knew he was a traitor to Islam. So they immediately began to beat him. Their plan was to beat him to death. Long story short, there was a man in, the, in that group who was a new believer who hadn't confessed that he was a Christian yet. He was a new believer. And long story short, he came up with a plan and said, hey, you know what? I bet we can, let's not kill him. I bet if we, let me take him down to the bottom of the mountain and, and heal him, because he was beat almost to death. Let, let me heal him up and heal his wounds and give him time to recover. And then, we'll, and then we'll torture him. We'll interrogate him and find out who he's smuggling Bibles to and where they're coming from. So this guy ended up, he was like a good Samaritan, essentially, and saved his life. It was interesting. Most of us, after being almost beaten to death, we would probably just stop, right? But this guy, I don't know his name, he, he immediately, once he was healed, immediately started smuggling Bibles again. So as, as Nick and this guy are talking, their story was kind of winding down. I'm going to read a little, quite a bit to you here, but man, this is incredible, so that's why I want to read it to you. So, Nick asked the guy, he said, you've told me that you are married, that you have sons, that you have led your wife and your children to Christ, and that you have even baptized them. What I'm wondering is this, where do they fit into your ministry? You haven't talked about that. I'm just curious, how do they help you? What's happening with your family? I was not expecting what happened next. The man left out of the darkness and suddenly stood face to face with me. He clamped his scarred hands down tight on my shoulders and his fierce dark eyes bored like lasers into mine. I instinctively thought of my earlier question about the number of men that he had killed. (laughs) For hours, I listened to his inspiring story, but now I was terrified as he shook me and demanded to know, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can he ask it? I think maybe that's when my heart started beating again. I realized that maybe he was angry at God and not me. My confusion cleared up even more as he went on to exclaim, I have given him everything. My body has been broken. I have been jailed. I have been starved. I have been beaten. I have been left for dead. His words sounded a lot like the Apostle Paul's recitation of all that he had suffered in the service of Christ. I have been willing even to die for Jesus, he pleaded. But do you know what I fear when I go to bed at night? You know what keeps me awake, what actually terrifies me? Is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I have already willingly given him. I'm afraid he'll ask them to do the same. How can he ask it? Tell me, how could God ask that of my wife and children? Finally, I told him, I personally cannot answer your question. But I have to ask another question. Because I've had to ask myself. By the way, Nick had experienced persecution as well. He had been a missionary for a time. So Nick asked this man, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? He was undoubtedly the toughest man I have ever met. But he began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me and buried his face in my shoulder and he wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back and wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for this display of emotion. Then he looked me in the eyes again, nodded and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, 
my wife's life, and he is worth the lives of my children. I've got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. I've got to let them share in this ministry. With that, the toughest man I ever met said goodbye. He turned and walked out of the room. Nick writes, he has a little asterisk at the bottom of the chapter. He says, my encounter with this man was more than a dozen years ago. The last I heard, he and his family are still doing for the kingdom of God the work that he described to me. And he is still the toughest man I've ever met. Is Jesus worth it to you? share with the people I hang out with at school, if I share the gospel with them, they're going to make fun of me. He is worth it. Man, if I start talking about Jesus at work, they're going to think I'm weird. They're going to kind of shun me. Jesus is worth it. And my family, they're not Christians. They think I'm crazy. That It's going to be a really awkward spring break. It's going to be a really awkward summer if I start talking about Jesus. Jesus is worth it. When you see something as precious, then you realize it is, it is worth everything. Y'all, is Jesus worth it? Well, we've got to ask ourselves. And the answer is yes, he is completely worth anything, any hardship we might face. Man, he's, he's worth it. Y'all would, I want us to pray. I think our prayer needs to be, God, help us to, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Help us not to be frightened. But I think the way that happens is by us seeing how, how worthy Jesus is, how precious he is. When we realize that his blood has cleansed me and washed me white as snow. He's, he's raised me from death to life. So I want you, right now, we're at, just bow your head for a moment. Let's just pray. Say, God, help me to see you as more precious than anything. And because of that, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Make that your prayer. never going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel until you realize and are captivated by how worthy Jesus is until you see how precious he is when you realize who you are and who he is and that he paid the price for all your sin the blood that we all have dripping down our arms Jesus has taken away I want you to, while you're praying, considering, I want you to ask for boldness and say, God, show me. Show me where I need to be more bold. Show me where I need to quit being such a wuss, being so scared of, of I don't want to use the word persecution because I don't really experience it in America, but suffering or hardship or maybe persecution, me, being made fun of. God, help me to quit being scared. Help me to be bold. Show me those opportunities because you are worth it. Jesus, I pray that as we just finish up and sing a little bit, Lord, that we would see that you are worth whatever 
amount of suffering or hardship or difficulty we may face, God. It's totally worth it because you are precious to us. Lord, I pray that as we sing, you would stir our hearts. We would see how amazing you are. And because of that, Lord, that we would leave this gathering, that we would scatter and go through this next week living lives worthy of the gospel. Lord, I pray if there's someone tonight that doesn't know you, that's not a believer, that they would be bold enough to afterwards find me or, or Lauren or David or Julia or, or anybody, Lord, and, and, and talk to us about coming to a relationship with you and placing their faith in you. Jesus, we love you. Help us to see how worthy you are. In your name we pray.